we all understood that if we refused to work with Mr. Giuliani, we would lose a very important opportunity to cement relations between the United States and Ukraine. So we followed the president's orders. So we followed the president's orders. Memorable words this week from U.S. Ambassador Gordon Sondland as he recounted the pressure campaign by President Trump and his deputies to get the Ukrainian government to announce an investigation into the president's political rival, Joe Biden. It was one of many memorable lines that Sondland delivered during some of the most significant testimony yet in the House impeachment investigation. Sondland laid out how Vice President Pence, Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo were all aware of what was going on. Quote, everyone was in the loop, Sondland said. And as for the investigations that Trump was demanding that Ukrainian President Zelensky tell the world about, Sondland said... He had to announce the investigations. He didn't actually have to do them. As the hearings wind up and the House moves to the next phase in the impeachment drama, we'll dissect Sondland's testimony with Peter Zeidenberg, a former federal prosecutor who once investigated another White House, and we'll look at what happens next with Yahoo News reporter John Ward on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent with Yahoo News. And I'm Daniel Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, if you remember during Watergate, there were those iconic lines that everybody remembers, modified, limited, hangout, cancer on the presidency. Sondland was just full of these lines that we'll be talking about for years. And, you know, in many ways, some of them, I, we followed the president's orders, you know, really framed this in a way that was pretty damning. So cancer on the presidency was John Dean, yes, who was the star witness in the Watergate hearings. But I looked this up. It took more than a year after John Dean's bombshell testimony before there was enough evidence unearthed to force the resignation of Richard Nixon. And that raises an interesting question for me, because these hearings and Sondland's testimony in particular revealed that, you know, as he said, everyone was in the loop that there were a lot of really high-level Trump administration officials who knew about this scheme. Yeah. You had Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, you had Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff, and you had the vice president. Yeah, he... And yet, and yet, you know, it looks like we've wound down this uh, House uh, inquiry. I mean, it, there's a possibility of more witnesses, but I'm wondering, you know, are there, are there going to be more investigations here? Should the Democrats be pushing for more witnesses to come forward, or for, you know, political reasons, are they going to have to push this through quickly? Right. Look, I mean, you know, there was testimony about Pompeo and him being informed about uh, what was going on and the the, uh, the need for the investigations. But the one that really struck me was Sondland testifies about he talks to Pence 
when Pence is in Warsaw, and here's here's what he said. I mentioned to Vice President Pence before the meetings with the Ukrainians that I had concerns that the delay in aid had become tied to the issue of investigations. Pence is the guy who would become president if yeah. Trump were impeached. This, and right. here he is being implicated in part of the same scheme that they are impeaching Trump for. This is right before Pence is going to be meeting with Zelensky. Uh, Zelensky in and Zelensky brings up the military assistance. What Sondland testified was, was that Pence acknowledged what he said. He nodded his head in acknowledgement, which strongly suggests that he knew what was going on here. Yeah, he heard what I said, Sondland testified, adding, I don't recall any substantive response. And of course, Mark Short, uh, Pence's chief of staff, did uh, did deny it. One other pretty memorable line to me came today from um, David Holmes, the State Department official, uh, embassy, uh, political counselor, who was there in that to take that phone call or to listen to the phone call that Sondland has with Trump at the Kiev restaurant on July 26th, the day after the uh, Trump-Zelensky phone call. And this is when Sondland gets off the phone and tells Holmes or everybody present, uh, you know, the president doesn't give a shit about Ukraine. He just wants these investigations. But he also mentions that there was a separate conversation that Trump and Sondland had that day about the rapper who was being imprisoned in Sweden. And it was Sondland's uh, job to get that rapper out because the president was being pushed to free the rapper by the Kardashians. This is what motivates Trump. And Holmes testified that he hears Sondland telling Trump, apparently the Swedes were not going along, but Sondland tells Trump, you should tell the Kardashians you tried. That's kind of right. Says a lot. If maybe it says everything about what motivates Donald Trump and uh, what he responds well, that, to. That, that makes me think of. To me, I think one of the most things that made one of the biggest impressions on me over the course of the last few days is kind of a cultural point almost. It's the contrast between these witnesses, uh, particularly the State Department witnesses, these foreign service officers, these professional diplomats, and on the one hand, Sondland himself who doesn't come out of that uh, culture. Yeah, a hotel uh, magnate. Who a gave hotel a magnate. Bucks to the inauguration. You know, so, the, so the diplomats and Fiona Hill, who worked in the NSC, they're dignified, they right. believe in process, they're you know, buttoned up, very precise and careful. Sondland, on the other hand, you know, <laughs> is like cracking jokes, mm-hmm. saying things like, you know, uh, he loves your ass uh, yeah. when he talks to Trump, right. referring to Zelensky. And then, of course, the histrionics of some of these members of Congress, like Jim Jordan. And that contrast for me was pretty powerful. But listen, before we get to our first guest, you had a scoop this week, you and um, Zach, Zach Dorfman. Dorfman. Yes. So uh, there was a lot of talk about from the Republicans about how we haven't had a chance to talk to the whistleblower. There is a, uh, a few people in, in, a, in an office not too far from where we sit right now who also have been trying to talk to the whistleblower. Tell yeah, us about that. The, the FBI, this was uh, something, uh, a sort of new wrinkle in this, which is that the FBI has been seeking an interview with the whistleblower on its own. An agent reached out to one of the lawyers for the whistleblower to uh, request to interview him. Now, this you know, raised a lot of eyebrows because we had 
been told two months ago that the Justice Department basically reviewed the whistleblower complaint and shut it down. Nothing to see here. They did analysis. There's no campaign finance violations. Therefore, no reason to investigate. The FBI works for the Justice Department. Yet, Zach Dorfman and I reported this week there was a lot of discontent within the FBI over this and people who thought that some of these allegations needed to be followed up, particularly on counterintelligence grounds that uh, concerns that uh, Giuliani uh, through these two uh, associates of his who have since been indicted, Fruman and Parnas, uh, were being manipulated by Russian interests. And this is sort of an outgrowth of the Russian active measures influence campaign. And we don't know. That's why the FBI wanted to talk, wants to talk to the whistleblower. But the mere fact that they asked that they asked to do so suggests that the Bureau did not just want to shrug its shoulders and move on here, which is clearly what the Justice Department wanted to do. Some people within the Bureau thought this needed to be pursued. So and two things very quickly. The whistleblower complaint actually went to the FBI, right? That's right. In early September, this is something not a lot of people picked up on, but the inspector general for the intelligence community specifically sent the FBI a copy of the whistleblower complaint. And finally, the whistleblower lawyers, will they let their clients speak to the FBI. They don't seem inclined to do so. I wouldn't uh, do it. Yeah. I mean, first of all, anytime you submit to an FBI inter- interview, you're opening yourself up to possible false statements if what you say contradicts what other people say. Uh, but, you know, they are, they seem to have one clear interest, and in that is to keep the their client, the whistleblower, anonymous and not expose him to any questioning all right. at all. Well, fascinating story. Uh, and now let's get on to the rest of the show. We are now joined by Peter Zeidenberg, a longtime federal prosecutor who once investigated another White House as part of the uh, special counsel team of Patrick Fitzgerald and is now a uh, criminal defense lawyer here in Washington. Peter, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right. So, look, this is a... um, an impeachment uh, investigation. And of course, impeachment uh, is a political process, but it also is a legal process. I mean, the, the words of the Constitution, treason, bribery, high, and other high crimes and misdemeanors, those are legal words. So I want to get your perspective as a, uh, a former prosecutor and defense attorney. Legally, what is the case against the president? What's the crime if you do see a crime here? And what are the elements of that crime? Well, I kind of reject the, the premise because I don't really view it as a criminal case. If it, if it were a criminal case, you would say it was a bribery or, or possibly extortion, where it's just sort of the flip side of bribery. And um, he was extorting or soliciting a bribe from the Ukraine, from the president, in exchange for aid money that he was holding up. And he was giving something of value, and, and what he wanted was an official act, which is what the they were getting at on cross-examination. Uh, Schiff was very clearly going through the statute, and this was from uh, you know the case in Virginia, the, the governor, where the Supreme Court has said it's got to be an official act. It can't just be frankly, an unofficial act. So is the official act the meeting, or is it the aid, or is it both? I would say it's both. I mean, the aid is, is you know, there, there's, I don't know how you could even make a plausible argument. That's not something, you know, that's, that's U.S. taxpayer money. But the 
Oval Office visit is an official act. I mean, that's done as the act of the president in the White House, and it's meant to convey uh, stature on the um, recipient. And so that that would should be viewed as an official act. And and the reason why the distinction plausibly matters is there seems to be uh, you know Sondland didn't equivocate that the meeting was clearly linked directly to the investigations, but he was he, he sort of gleaned or, or surmised that or figured out later that the aid was also uh, linked. So you the know, words that he said is he said he assumed. Right. And the Republicans really jumped on that. So just for, as a, uh, a courtroom litigator, when Sondland says, I assumed that the president held up the aid in order to get these investigations of the Biden's and 2016 election interference, is that enough? His assumption is that usable? Would that be usable if this were in a court of law? In a court of law, someone's opinion, assumptions wouldn't be admissible. They couldn't say, what do you think that meant? I, well, I take that back. A skillful prosecutor can work that type of uh, information in by asking a question, well, what was your understanding? What did you understand that to mean? Th- that type of thing. But you know, if you have a skillful prosecutor, you don't take each piece of evidence in isolation. You don't rest your case, well, Sondland thought, so now we know beyond a reasonable doubt. You look at what Sondland thought, and then you compare it to the transcript. And you say, well, he was right. You know, it's, I mean, the transcript is the best evidence. I mean, he says it in there. I want a favor. And, and he doesn't say Burisma. That's, that's taken out. He talks about the Biden. So the, all of this back and forth you know, what was meant, what did he have? Maybe he really was interested in Burisma for whatever reason. I mean, what are we doing here? You know, he said the Bidens. Well, I I should say that that just reminds me of the point which I've made, you know, a number of occasions uh, is this is sort of like Watergate in reverse. In Watergate, we had a year and a half of investigations by Congress and the FBI that culminated in the smoking gun tape. In this case, we started with the smoking gun, the transcript of the phone call with the president's own words. I want you to do me a favor, though. So Adam Schiff, I mean, he's talked about about bribery and extortion. But for the most part, he's framed it differently. He's talked about the president's conduct being, I think, not compatible with the office of the presidency, essentially that he abused his office. So if that's the framing of this impeachment inquiry, and we saw this set of facts unspool over the last few days in these hearings, how strong is that case in, in your view? And you know, what are the most important elements of it? Where do the Democrats really score? And where are the, the weaknesses in that case, as far as you're concerned? I don't know what other people think. You're asking me what I think? Yes. I, yes. I, That's why you're on this podcast. <laughs> I mean, if this is not abuse of power, abuse of the office, that's why when, when you said it, a criminal case, extortion, bribery, I mean, the, it's an abuse of the office. He's using the powers of the office to benefit him personally and politically. And he's doing it by using taxpayer money and dangling it over an ally that's in desperate need of it and saying, before you get that, I want a favor. And that is a favor not to the United States. I mean, I feel like the these defenses are 
I mean, to say they're disingenuous, does it, it gives them way too much credit. I mean, it's absurd. Well, let's talk about those defenses, the Republican defenses, yes. and how they've stood up over the last few days. So which ones are you uh, referring to? I mean, one of them <laughs> is that there was there couldn't have been a quid pro quo because the Ukrainians didn't know that the, that the military assistance was being frozen. How did that hold up? Well, it didn't hold up at all as, as of, uh, was it this morning? Or well, last well, night? Last night. Last night, where, where, where we heard that they were asking about it at the end of July. The same time of the phone call. Laura Cooper, the defense official, right. who was hearing from the from the Ukrainian embassy in Washington on the same day as the July 25th but phone call. But, I mean, call. there was already is already witness after witness has said, you know, who were on, their, on the ground in the Ukraine saying that this is being communicated and they understood and they were worried. And there were these meetings where the, the Ukrainians, the president wants to have this meeting at the Oval Office. So... I mean, it's being—that argument's gone anyway. Okay, so we can talk whether academically it makes sense. It's gone now because we have a unequivocal witness saying they knew well, back well, at the end of July. Well, just to be fair here, they, what Laura Cooper testified is she got inquiries about what's going on with the foreign aid, uh, for, with the military aid. It wasn't clear what prompted those inquiries, what they knew— and what the state of play was at the time, Ambassador Taylor testified that it wasn't until the Politico article came out on August 29th that he started getting phone calls, and he's the ambassador on the ground, he's in charge of the uh, embassy, he starts getting phone calls from the defense minister at Kiev saying, what's going on with the security aid? So at least at the highest levels, the direct testimony is that the concerns didn't begin until a month later. But it may may have it you know there there's earlier, clearly a, a lot of this people. goes to whether this effort was successful you know that was the other thing you know well the uh, they the money was released i mean it, you can't even it, those arguments you can't even they don't pass the straight face test well they didn't actually do the investigations i mean, I mean come on you it's it's laughable you know obviously these, this money was released after the whistleblower came out and Congress got involved. And the same thing with the, uh, the Trump denial. I don't want to quid pro quo. He was probably reading from that piece of paper we saw, you know, from his uh, press avail yesterday where he's reading in these, with the giant Sharpie saying, I don't want to quid pro quo. You know, it, it was the September 9th. This is when the money's being released. You know, at that point, for him to say, just do the right thing, you know, it doesn't really mean much. I would be really interested to know who he was meeting with before that phone call. Yeah. Well, I don't think Trump ever said, do the right thing. I'm he not, said, I'm, 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 he I think he said, he wants Zelensky to do the right thing. Right. He right. said, right. so the, right. He's so, not telling Sondland to right, do the right but, thing. But yeah. he, Sondland says, what's the message? And, the, and he says, just tell Zelensky to do the right thing. Right. Which, well, Eric Swalwell, a California Democrat, had a good line, which is it's a little like a guy being pulled over for speeding uh, by a cop, and he says to the cop, I didn't rob the bank. <laughs> you know, I mean, why is Trump even talking about quid pro quos? Yeah. 
you know, one reason I wanted to have you on here is um, because you had been on Patrick Fitzgerald's special counsel team uh, investigating the Bush White House over the disclosure of Valerie Plame's identity. You indicted and convicted Scooter Libby, but there was another very high-level target you had, Carl Rove, who came close to being indicted and happened to have the same lawyer as Gordon Sondland, Bob Luskin, who uh, managed to uh, get Rove uh, out of your sights, or at least out of um, getting indicted. And it struck me that Luskin was very good navigating what the available evidence was and then getting his client, Rove, to amend his testimony, which seems to be exactly what he did with Gordon Sondland when new evidence emerged that Sondland had not originally disclosed to the committee? Well, I'm not going to confirm or deny any of your reporting <laughs> on, on the Carl Rove and, and Luskin because... Uh, uh, I think Rove that, has already written he came this close uh, to being indicted. In his I, book, I don't know right? what he wrote, but I, yeah, I, I don't right. want to... Um, a comment on on you know the investigation if there was one on him I don't think that's appropriate <laughs> but I will talk about in general trying to go back in and fixing you know it was an interesting decision that the Democrats had and I thought they played it well I thought that you know their counsel um, did a good job in in crossing him because it's tempting when someone changes their story you know, as a prosecutor or as an investigator, you're, you're always looking for the inconsistencies. And it's it's a little bit hard to imagine how he, he his testimony kept evolving as more evidence came to light. And, you know, I think it would have been foolish to jump on those inconsistencies because the testimony was getting better and better for the uh, Democrats, right? But at the same time, it would be more and more counter to his own self-interest. So I don't question the credibility. People say, well, you're a bars and you wanted to hear that. But I mean, it, it, it makes sense why he was holding that back initially, because he didn't want to stick his deck out. He didn't want to get in any hot water with Trump. So he was putting the best gloss on it he could. And then there's more and more information comes out. So he's giving it up grudgingly. I still don't think um, like most people are watching, he's giving it all up. I mean, this idea that he didn't know Burisma equals the Bidens, I mean, that seems uh, yeah. I, very far-fetched. i got to say, I thought that, that uh, Sondland, while he did provide a lot of really important information, some of it was explosive, he was too clever by half in a lot of ways. And I thought that, for example, and this was one of the bombshells, that, you know, when he started off in his written statement uh, saying that the State Department didn't turn over any of the documents uh, that he needed to, uh, to, to refresh his memory, and, and that was widely regarded as State Department obstructing this investigation, that was also made to make Sondland look like the inaccurate testimony that he gave um, in his original deposition was because the State Department did not give him these documents that he needed to refresh his, uh, his memory. And then on the Burisma point, as, as, as you say, I mean, that's just, it's just not credible at all. I mean, I think it was Tim Morrison who, who in about 15 seconds, Googled the name Burisma, as you would if you're hearing the name of this company over and over again to learn that this was about Hunter Biden. And by the way, I think the New York Times had already reported in a front page story 
about uh, Hunter Biden's involvement in this company, and everyone was talking about it. So, you know, it struck me that that Sondland, you know, he was the of all of the witnesses, he was the only one who got hostile questioning from from both sides. Yeah, there were cross from both sides because he's a problematic witness. He is, but um, you know, I think on balance, he's he's helping one side far more, and he's trying to provide, like like Mike was suggesting, you know, an explanation for why this isn't perjurious and why it's not obstruction, or, and no one's going to go after him for saying, well, my memory is now improved. You know, the bottom line is, I can't think of a case where anyone was charged with perjury or false statements where. Before the the hammer came down, they changed their testimony, right. and, and and they said whatever the reason. Now I remember. Now it's improved. Thanks for refreshing my recollection. It, it would be pretty difficult and and hard to imagine a, a case right. being so, brought. So we started this conversation, um, you by making the distinction between a criminal case and, and an impeachment case, which is not necessarily criminal. One other significant difference is you know we we now know from Sondland's testimony that many more very senior officials in the administration were in the loop about this scheme, including the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, the Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney, and the Vice President. Uh, and Bolton. And, and, and the Vice President uh, Pence and Bolton. In a criminal case, the prosecutor would be subpoenaing those people. Absolutely. And would be able to get them before the grand jury. Absolutely. So what, what should the Democrats do at this point with the knowledge that the, uh, you know, all the president's men, I mean, the top. Everyone was in the loop. Everyone was in the loop. <laughs> Look, quote, you know Solomon. what? I, I am very sympathetic to um, the way Schiff is handling this strategic decision. I mean, obviously, a best case scenario, you would have all these witnesses. But who here thinks, raise your hand if you think they came in and said, yeah, it was a quid pro quo. We were doing it. That's the way business gets done. How many, Actually, didn't he Mulvaney did say, say that? that? Yeah, Mulvaney that. did. That's right. He already confessed. Yeah. He already admitted it. And, 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 and how many senators do you see rushing to talk about impeachment? I mean, it wouldn't matter. They would make an airtight case, you know, vacuum sealed. So it would be even, you know, more impenetrable. It, but but the facts at the old, at the end of the day, they say, you know, this he's unconventional. What do you know? He doesn't understand these things. You know, could you make a conspiracy case out of this? A criminal conspiracy yes. case? I mean, to, to what end? I mean, you're not going to really, you, you know, Barr's going to indict the uh, no, no, entire I'm just Trump saying administration. If this were, by the way, just I, I get the distinction about impeachment does not have to be about a crime. Abuse right. of office can be grounds for impeachment. But in the three instances of presidential impeach impeachments in our history, they were all about violations of the law. Well, they, Andrew in, Johnson, Tenure of Office Act, Richard Nixon, clear obstruction of justice of an investigation into a crime, a burglary, and with Clinton, perjury. So if the Democrats frame Article One as an abuse of office, that will be the first time in American history it's been done and not been about a president committing a particular crime. You know, I haven't gone back to look at the articles of impeachment for Nixon, but I know, or at least I, I, I believe that one of the things one that he was, was, was telling yes. the CIA to get the FBI to back off. That was and, the smoking gun tape. So, you know, that's use uh, and, 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 you know, they, they was using the IRS 
against his his uh, opponent. So that's to me classic abuse of power. And you know, to the extent that there was a crime when you've got you know the burglary, yeah, there there was a burglary. I don't know how much. Look, you know, I guess you can you can say, well, that was, a, you know, you can find that in the code book. It was about criminality. Yes. I mean, cl- Nixon clearly could have been prosecuted for what he did. In fact, he was an unindicted co-conspirator. He could have been an indicted co-conspirator. Uh, I mean, you know, I can't theoretically, is this all a conspiracy? Were they all in agreement? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you could say that they were, uh, they all worked it in concert to make this happen as according to Solon, they were all they were all in the loop and if you say the underlying conduct was illegal then but i mean it's a, it's such a theoretical argument because i can't imagine a criminal case being brought where the the object of the conspiracy is 400 million dollars of usa being held up by the president i mean is it a crime i mean well that that's I, the first I, question i asked you I, is I, there a crime here you know i i guess i think uh it's an abuse of office. It's clearly an abuse of office. Whether it, I think it does meet the statutory definition of, uh, you know, he's soliciting a bribe or he's extorting them, whichever way you want to look at it. So, you know, I think it does, but I don't know that that's the proper framework because I think that that, you know, sort of confines this in, in a narrow way that it shouldn't be. So, Peter, you're a practitioner. You're a lawyer who's who's examined lots and lots of witnesses over the course of your uh, career, both as a prosecutor and a defense lawyer. So, curious what you think of uh, the questioning, the quality of it. Were there any particular high moments on either side, low moments uh, for you? Well, my, you know, I'm I'm impressed with, with Dan Goldman. I think he does a very nice job. I think Schiff does a very nice job. I think it starts to degrade after that. And, and <laughs> when you get to the members. The five, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the five-minute and, 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 and um, I have some sympathy in the sense that, you know, by the end, after three and a half hours, it's hard to come up with a fresh line of questioning. But I don't think that that necessarily means, well, I'm going to just ask questions anyway. I mean, you know, I don't know what the, the consideration is. You know, Schiff's a smart guy, but, I mean— if it were up to me, if I were directing these things, my suggestion would be, why do you have to fill up the entire day with this? You know, why does it have to go for nine and a half hours? I mean, the, you have these powerful opening statements. You have 45 minutes of questioning yeah. um, from both sides. I think that's a more uh, less is more. Yeah. And I think it's a really good point. We talked a little bit about this because, you know, the Democrats decided to do this impeachment inquiry kind of narrow and deep, which is to say just on Ukraine. After a while, you know, you're telling the same story over and over and over again, which I think can be deadening for it's deadening. viewers. It, it really is. I mean, by, you know, I have it on for the first few hours and then you tune it back in and you're like, wait a minute, is the, are they replaying what mm-hmm. I've already heard? If I, I mean, I think I've already heard this stuff. And it's not getting better. It's not more compelling the more times you hear it. As for the rest of the questioning, I mean, I think Castor, the, the Republican, you know, I have some counsel. He, he, I got some sympathy because these witnesses are tough. I'm not sure what his object is. You know, I think that some of the the questioning of Sondland by the Republicans was effective in that, you know, you tune in and he's going, well, yes, I'm surmising this. Yes, I'm this is some uh, I'm speculating about this or I'm putting two and two together. I didn't actually hear that. You know, that's, you know, certainly good cross. You know, some of the stuff, the question we, we I was watching today of uh, the two witnesses, Fiona Hill and, and David Holmes, you know, they had no strategy. 
They had no, no. plan. They, they, you know, they, they didn't know where they were they, going, they, and they, they keep asking the same questions they ask everybody else. And, 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 and they the, were allowing these witnesses yep. to say their points again and again, and I think it was, you know, hurt, hurting them. Uh, it certainly wasn't helping them. Um, I guess, you know, I, I think that they should be cutting this stuff off, and I don't know how, you, maybe maybe there'd be a revolt on the committee if he said, you know, we're, we're not going to let you guys ask questions. Okay, I got a little bit of a curveball for you. You're a defense lawyer now. How would you defend the president? Well, you're asking the <laughs> wrong person. <laughs> Come on, this is your job. This is what you do for a living. Yeah, but, and I'm but, sure you have plenty of guilty clients who come in and ask for your expert services. Yeah, but I don't work for free. And, and mm-hmm. if I would be concerned if I was representing him, I wouldn't be getting paid. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, I think that's a so, legitimate concern given well, his record. That's why he had a hard time getting a good uh, defense lawyer. But no, seriously, you know, if you were as an intellectual faced exercise. With the facts, an intellectual exercise law school moot court here how would you defend them boy you've 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 uh you've stumped me you know because the defenses are are illegitimate you know these defenses they're not legitimate defenses like you know talking about hunter biden they really needed to know about corruption i mean that's not a you know maybe if you're a defense attorney you got a desperate you you got a client and you have to go to i mean plead him out that's what i would do if i had a case i mean (laughs) you know if you were if you're in an impeachment case you know i guess you don't want you you just do what they're doing which is it's it's not a criminal case it's a political case and i would just keep the you know the senators on board and say well "Well, what difference does it make what does plead him out mean in, in, in this context. It doesn't. doesn't. It doesn't. Or you go it for, doesn't. trying to go for censure? So, 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 yeah. Well, a lesser include, less, yeah. lesser sentence of censure. So, I mean, honestly, it, from a factual standpoint, this is not a defensible case. Like, it, you know, putting aside whether this is an extortion case or whether it's a bribery case, it's if the case is you are holding up money and, and taxpayer money and a visit in the Oval Office in exchange for the uh, investigation of the Bidens. If that were the case, you'd say the, the, there is not a, you know, if I'm the lawyer and, and it's coming to me and saying, look, we don't have a defense to this case. So we're going to have to, if it were, if you had to try it, you'd say this isn't a triable case. Some cases you get are not triable, you know, and, and so you, you, as a good defense attorney, you try and get a disposition that that's most favorable well, to your well, client. Let me ask this. Let me just ask this because um, well, one thing that really struck me watching these hearings, and I, I may have missed some of it, but I don't think any Republican other than Will Hurd today actually acknowledged that the president's conduct was inappropriate. Any at House all. Republican? Any House? Any House? Re- any, no, I'm talking yeah. about any this, this impeachment. Right. Any House Republican? If you were defending Trump, I mean, maybe the strategy would be to acknowledge that this was not a perfect call, that there were problems here uh, with the conduct, but it is not impeachable, and you don't take a duly elected president, you don't take that vote away from the American people. First of all, if you were representing him, you couldn't say that because the call was perfect, remember? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you know, so the client would not let you say that. So, so you know, the type of argument that you're making, which is what a reasonable defense attorney would say, well, you know, things were done, he's, you know, he's... He operates like a a businessman, not a president, which is not much of a defense after three years in office, right? But it's not impeachable. They're going to have an election. He's he's saying it's perfect. You got to go say, what what do you mean? What do you mean I did something wrong? So that's why when you say, would you represent... (laughs) 
You're like, are you kidding? <laughs> but, but I do think, actually, you may have pointed to one possible resolution here. And I think a lot's going to depend on what plays out over the next few weeks. But, you know, there is one witness who could really put the nail in the coffin out there, and that's John Bolton. Right. If we got if we got Bolton's testimony, because Bolton presumably had a lot of conversations directly with the president that would have uh, informed all this. If Bolton, he's not going to testify in the House hearings, but when this gets to a trial, you know, he could be the star ultimate witness. I, I thought that and they that, had abandoned the subpoena for well, him. Well, subpoena for him. For yeah, but this they, hearing, but that but, process but when that, you get to the Senate trial, but that process, you know, unless they're going to be satisfied with the district court ruling, or or if or if Bolton volunteers, to, yeah, if he, you know, Bolton could at a Senate trial, you know, there there could be a subpoena. Board. Anyway, all I'm saying is, if he delivers what a lot of people think the but testimony is, he would. That could prompt the resolution here of some Republican senator but saying, I, okay, yeah. let's censure the guy. We'll acquit him of the uh, of, 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 of the charges in impeachment, but we'll censure him, and that would be the resolution. I, I'm just not, I'm not actually sure we can assume that Bolton actually, I mean, he had many conversations with Trump, obviously, as his national security advisor, but I'm not sure we can assume that Trump, you know, said to Bolton at some point, you know, we're not we're not unfreezing that military assistance until he gives us the investigations. I don't know that Trump and Bolton had that kind of relationship. What about Mulvaney? Mulvaney is the key witness. I mean, Mulvaney, he's the linchpin because, you know, he's not only the chief of staff, he's head of OMB. And I don't think, I mean, hasn't he waived his uh, executive privilege by going out there at a press conference and, and confessing? It does, look, you know, the, the, the thing about these, the, these rules is, is they're, they're not self-enforcing. Right. You, so, you have to litigate. So, yeah, he, he did waive. Right. But, all right, so what? Well, you, and the fact that the Chief Justice of the United States is going to preside over the trial, can he rule just as the chief judge of the trial? I would say yes. because Order, in the, order the testimony? I mean, he's not wow. a witness. It's just like a judge in, in a district court trial. Who, 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 who would Bolton or Mulvaney appeal to if the chief justice orders their testimony All to right. be delivered? Trump is really going to regret having trashed John Roberts during the uh, 2016 yeah. campaign yeah. in those anyway, tweets. Um, well, Peter, thanks for your analysis. Uh, we will um, have you back as this process rolls on and we get a climactic trial in the United States Senate. Thanks All for right. joining us. I look forward to it. Thanks so much, thanks. Peter. And we now have with us our colleague, John Ward, just back from the hearing. You've been covering it all week. John, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks, guys. And Good uh, to be so here. what's it like covering this stuff? Give us the atmospherics uh, before we dig into the actual testimony. It's freezing. Really? Yes. The room is very cold. Huh. Yeah. So Has last, anybody complained about that? All the reporters are miserable. It's so that is it like like in a TV of, studio they don't want people to sweat. Yes, one of the gallery staffers said they do it to make people to to avoid having people sweat, and 
I can't remember. I think this was maybe just another journalist. Somebody was saying, if the majority wants a witness to sweat, they will turn the heat up. <laughs> um, so the last two days, I actually just wore like a shirt and a sports jacket. And today you can see I'm wearing a sweater and I had a down vest. So I was prepared. By the way, that's what Nixon always thought the Kennedy family did to him in the 1960 debate. Yeah, made him sweat. Yeah, but no, the atmospherics are that it's, you know, I, it's a great room, first of all, in, Long, it in Longworth. It's yeah. Longworth 1101, I think. I don't know that there's a name for that room, actually, but it's a huge there room. There will, but by the time this is over. Yeah, it's the, it's the House Ways and Means Committee Room. And um, very, very august, you know, very big huge you know decorative ceiling and i would say it's pretty it's pretty sober the the atmosphere inside the room um, there were no protests there were no were there? protests there were there i don't were, remember that happening there was applause yeah. after uh vinman finished his testimony on tuesday there was maybe a little bit of applause I, for somebody else cheers but, for schiff after he gives these closing arguments every day yeah there are definitely few, there have been fewer there was one guy in a MAGA hat at one point with a little cross lapel pin on his jacket, I guess, that was laughing and audibly saying things like, this is a joke on maybe Tuesday when Schiff was talking. I think the word is hoax or sham. <laughs> no, he was saying a joke about something about the whistleblower that right. Schiff was okay. saying. But yeah. but yeah, overall, it's been very kind of buttoned down. The Democrats have had an intentional strategy to present a sober, you know, presentation. And Republicans, with the exception of maybe Jim Jordan and a couple others, you know, they've they've been at and Nunez has certainly been, I think, visibly angry almost every time he speaks. But, you know, I think a lot of the people on the committee are frustrated, in disagreement, but still largely adhering to the process even though they don't like it what, what about the relationship between Schiff and Nunez I mean the body language suggests that they don't like each other <laughs> at all oh, you think? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean was there anything visible uh, anything behind the scenes that you picked up about their relationship there have been they don't look at each other there have been moments where Nunez has been so angry appearing to look so angry that I I mean I at one point I, I wondered like does he want to punch Adam Schiff, like, <laughs> but Schiff, anytime Jim Jordan, anytime anybody's talking, really, but you have to wonder, like, what is Schiff thinking when Jim Jordan or, or Nunes are kind of going off on these stem winders? And pretty much without fail, Schiff sits ramrod straight, looks he, straight ahead. He was pretty disciplined. He didn't take yeah. the bait. Yeah, for the most part, he, yeah, I would say he did not. Yeah. Look, a lot of pretty dramatic testimony over the last few days. Sondland, clearly, in which he says we were following the president's orders. We, Everybody was in the loop. Uh, the, new, the account from Holmes about the phone call from, from Trump in which Sondland gets off the phone with the president and says the president doesn't give a shit about Ukraine. All he cares about is the investigations. But the big question is, is it moving the needle? At all, uh, both internally uh, on the among Republicans, will there be any chance of getting any House Republicans to vote? And then, you know, more broadly, with the public at large, and of course, the guy everybody's been looking to, 
is Will Hurd. Right. I was just going to mention him. Former CIA officer, considered a reasonable Republican who cares about uh, the national security and U.S. intelligence agencies and um, is retiring. And he finally seemed to tip his hand today. Yeah. Yeah, Tell us about that. Well, he started off by talking about Trump's phone call with Zelensky on July 25th. He said that the two two things that were, I don't know if he used the word wrong, but... He said inappropriate. Inappropriate were the mention of uh, Biden and the mention of a favor. But he went on to say, and he called this, you know, a bumbling foreign policy. The the first House Republican, by the way, to say there was anything anything critical about what Trump did. But he went on to say basically that just because Biden was running for office doesn't mean that Trump couldn't express concerns about Burisma or about corruption. And that was, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I think that's sort of the, the, the crux of his justification for saying, like, this is why I'm not going to support impeachment. Well, what, what but he, he said, went further than that because he also attacked the process. Yeah, he said, right. I've, he not said heard, a, right. I've not heard evidence the president committed bribery or extortion. And then he goes on to criticize what he called the, quote, partisan process. And, they, and, he, and he said, you know, we should hear from Hunter Biden and we should hear from the whistleblower. Right. Now, he also said— And he said uh, the whistleblower should, should be in closed session. It wouldn't do right. anything to, to, to jeopardize the identity. Right. right. Which I think is a— I mean, well, I've talked about the whistleblower in here before, but I, I think that seems like a legitimate But he didn't point. ask. He didn't say we should also hear from Mick Mulvaney. No, he, or, he did say Rudy Giuliani. But he did say Giuliani. I yeah. noticed that, yeah. So bottom line is it doesn't look like they're going to get Will Hurd. And right. if they don't get Will Hurd, do they have a shot at any Republicans in the House at all? Rooney, I've heard. One. Yeah, yeah so maybe one. But I, I guess I'm a little surprised at Hurd. You wonder if he's maybe still got uh, ambitions for office down the road. I've seen some speculation about that. But I I would still say that overall, I think we did five days, right, and and however many witnesses. I think it went better than Democrats could have expected. I think it was not a circus. First of all, that's like the low bar that you want to clear. And then I think they did establish a pretty clear fact pattern that augments what they already have in the July 25th trans- relative transcript of the call with Zelensky and Trump. And so um, I think when we began the hearings, we, when we began the inquiry, most people assumed the House would impeach, the Senate would acquit. Still looks like we're on that track. I think for Democrats, the goal probably, my sense of it, based on some reporting, some on just my own judgment, is that the goal is to conduct a sober, methodical process with an eye towards making a clear case that makes them look responsible and not hyperpartisan. And I think with a few exceptions, the process, you know, I, I think you could make some critiques of it, but I think there's also justifications for it. Uh, I think with a few exceptions, I think they've met that goal. Um, they want to they want to do the process, even if it's not going to work, because they need to uphold the rule of, uh, you know, co-equal powers, rule of law, et cetera. Do the process, do it right and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, I think it's a really shrewd point, because I think the concern that Nancy Pelosi had going into this was that it was going to there would be a backlash against Democrats. Right. right? And, and particularly those Democrats 
who were running for re-election in you know districts uh, that you know voted yeah. for Trump, and they could risk losing the House. And, and what this does, doing it with dignity and doing it in a sober and responsible way, mitigates those risks. And I hadn't really thought about that until you just mentioned it. Although I should point out, and I'm started to do this, you know, more and more over the last few days, is just looking at. The polling. Yeah. I haven't had time because, to do that. I've well, been so wrapped yeah, up in these yeah, hands. Go to Real Clear Politics, <laughs> impeachment polls. It's a couple of clicks you can get there. Yahoo uh, News doesn't have polls. <laughs> um, we I, will. We actually, we will, we okay. which we will. Skullduggery listeners impeachment will be telling you about very Coming soon. Coming soon. But right now, the Real Clear average is 48% in support of the process, 44 0.7, so rounded up to 45 against. That's not. Any real change from where we were, uh, I mean, if anything, it's actually gone down a couple of points, although all within margin of error. And the question is, if the needle doesn't move in terms of public sentiment, where does that leave the Democrats going forward? Well, I think first, you know, polls that are in the field right now won't come out for another several days. So that'll tell us more about what the trend is. And if it stays where it is now, I don't think that's a huge issue for them. Well, um, no, they, they, they have to go forward regardless. I'm just saying if right, you're but I don't taking think... it to the Senate for a trial yeah, and yeah. you're trying to get 20 Republicans or is it 22 Republicans to flip and vote for conviction, right. you know what? if you that have was, a purely... That was never going to happen. Right. Well, so I, right I that think, was never going to happen. Look, I think the question it, is, could so, they have gotten so wait a three or four or five Republican senators which would give it a patina of bipartisanship. Well, so then you're just acknowledging this whole thing as a political process then, because if it's never going to happen and if there is absolutely no chance of removing Donald Trump I, for office I mean, over that's this, that's my analysis. Then I'm not what sure is what they the, yeah, what is the point I, of I, going I, forward with this? I think Nancy Pelosi knew there was probably a 5% chance of Donald Trump being removed from office when she began this, maybe less. I don't think that makes it a illegitimate political process. Impeachment is political by nature. What it makes it from their perspective is two things. One, I don't think it, in the true, most true, truly political sense, I don't think you know Pelosi had a lot of leeway inside her party to not do this. That's the most political explanation. But I think the more high-minded explanation is that, and I think there's some real legitimacy to this argument, is that Democrats, when you press them on this, will say, well, if we don't like where where's the line, what does it have to get to for us to actually conduct an impeachment inquiry? What does the president have to do for us to take steps to hold him accountable? And I think that's the justification on the high plane for doing this, even if there's no chance that the Senate will convict. And I would say the risk, as Dan said, was always that there would be a huge backlash if polling stays where it is now. I think that's fine for them because then you've avoided a huge morass. Um, and, and, I, and by the way, I should point out that I, I did think that Schiff's most effective closing argument, he's gave, what, four of them this week, yeah. uh, sort of tying all the evidence together, making the case. But I thought his most effective was today where he made the point that the July 25th phone call came the day after Mueller had testified. The day after he knew that the Mueller, the threat of an impeachment investigation over Mueller had gone away. And he felt 
liberated, he could do whatever he wanted. He had gotten away with the obstruction he had done during the uh, uh, trying to fire Mueller, get rid of him, firing Comey, all that. He, you know, that was in the past now. And then that very next day, he tries to get the Ukrainians to interfere in the election to his benefit. And Schiff making the point, you know, you have to hold him accountable by not holding him accountable it emboldens right. him to commit more violations of right. the law or right. presidential abuse okay so john i want to ask you about two republicans who you wrote about this week uh, one of whom was on the committee and one who's in the trump administration one of whom was may have benefited politically from these hearings um, and the other one may have been hurt and we're talking about elise stefanik who's the uh, Republican from um, New York, right. and who had been pretty widely viewed as a, as a moderate uh, Republican, 35 years old. At one point, she was the youngest woman uh, elected to the House. And um, she really kind of, her profile rose significantly um, in the yes. last few days. And the other is, of course, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, mm-hmm. who, who uh, many people believe was going to leave the Trump administration to to go run for the Senate in Kansas. And um, he had a a bit of a rough go around in this uh, in these hearings. Yeah, Stefanik to me is so interesting. Um, She straight out of the gate in the first hearing last Wednesday with Bill Taylor and George Kent. Within the first few minutes after opening statements, she put everybody on notice that she was going to inject herself into these hearings by making procedural objections to Adam Schiff and then accusing him of interrupting her. And I wrote in the piece that came out last Friday that she did this a couple times, knowing full well, unless she was ignorant of committee rules, which I don't think she was, knowing full well she was violating the rules, she sort of concocted a, a theatrical confrontation with Schiff so that she could accuse him of interrupting her. Her profile went through the roof. She became a national figure overnight. President Trump began tweeting about her. She was raising money off of it, right? She began raising money off of off of it. As was her opponent. Her opponent <laughs> began raising money off of it, I think a million dollars in like a day or a couple days. And what I still don't know is to what degree she wanted that to happen, because she's not in a deep red district. She's in a district that elected a Democrat for 80 of the previous 100 years before she took office in 2014. Now, and it, and it elected a Democrat for president, going back to Clinton. It voted for Trump after voting for Obama twice. It's a majority, high majority, a white, high majority, non-college educated. But it's not as if she's got a plus 15, you know, district. So I talked to somebody pretty high up in the House, in the Republican side, who suggested that was maybe unplanned, that she kind of walked into the situation. The thing that I can't square with that is the way she kind of came out of the gate, you know, really confrontationally. And that was surprising to me right away, because my main understanding of her was, like you said, 35 years old, went to Harvard, uh, you know, worked for um, George W. Bush, worked for Josh Bolton in the White House, you know, worked for Paul Ryan on the 2012 campaign, just down the line establishment Republican. And then most well known, really, for confronting her own party on the lack of women 
that they have that they have in public office. Well, is this how you move into leadership in the Republican Party? That was Party? suggested to me. There's been retirements. She's young. She's aggressive. She's smart. And, uh, you know, it was it was also clear that the Republicans, Jim Jordan in particular, who was kind of quarterbacking sort of the public response, pushback to this whole to these hearings. It was clear he wanted her to be part of the response from the Republican side because he had her right next to him in the very first media scrum after the first day's hearings. All right. And quickly, Pompeo. Yeah. I mean, Pompeo was dragged into things most prominently by Gordon Sondland uh, on Wednesday. Sondland went out of his way to make statements like everybody knew what was going on. Everybody was in the loop. He included emails to Pompeo. He really made a point of saying, of pointing out that uh, Mike Pompeo knew what was going on and even encouraged him to do it at certain points. It's his boss. It's his boss. Yeah. That, that is pretty extraordinary yeah. that Sondland was diming out yeah. his his boss and the president, and he's still the U.S. ambassador to well, the European Union. Well, it's amazing the, the number of people who are still in office who have been witnesses against the president of the United States in his impeachment proceeding is, I mean— Appointees yeah. are all people he appointed. Uh, 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 John, very quickly— uh, uh, just walk us through the next few weeks. We're going into the Thanksgiving holiday. Yeah. What's going to happen? How's this going to work? Well, we don't know if Adam Schiff's going to call more witnesses. Is that still a that possibility? That is still an open question. He has not said he will not. He didn't tip his hand in his closing That's remarks. That's right. And so, you know, committee rules say you have to give seven days notice for a hearing, uh, which puts us past next week. There are questions about whether John Bolton gets called in. You know, I, I, there's legal questions about that. Well, I don't there's, think Bolton is going to happen because you know, he's demanding unless, a court ruling, which is unless he volunteers. In the next seven days. Yeah. yeah, right, and that could happen. So but, we thought so, that they were doing a report, and it sounds like they're not ready to start writing that report right now. I don't know that that's the case. I, I have not heard anything that would suggest yeah. that. You have? Yeah. If you listened to Skullduggery last week, you would have heard Tom Malinowski saying that the House Intelligence Committee, after the hearings, was going to write a report over well, the Thanksgiving that. holiday. I yeah. knew that, but you. What's yeah. what are you basing your your ironclad statement here on? The fact that they're <laughs> not ready to write a report. I would say, you know, I would say I think it's more likely than not that they do move forward at this point. But I think there are questions about whether they continue to have hearings after Thanksgiving. I think the majority of the Democratic Party, starting with Nancy Pelosi going on to the Senate, where you have multiple presidential candidates, do not want this process to drag out. So what happens next if they move on here is the Judiciary Committee uh, takes this up after the holiday. They will hold right, maybe— wait, wait, they got to write the report first yes, and then intelligence has to, to the Judiciary Committee. Correct, right. correct. So Schiff could take this break to do that, deliver it to Judiciary right when they come back or shortly thereafter. Judiciary, the question I think in my mind, and I think a lot of people's minds, is how many hearings do they have? Is it just one? Is it just one where they like just mark this up and move it on? I think that's fairly well, likely. And and the and the Republicans can call witnesses in the judiciary. Subject hearing. to the chair's I mean, subject, right. Well, yeah. that's going to be look. The that whole, would be the whole reason that this went to Schiff and intelligence in the first place is because the perception was Nadler was unable to control his committee. It, right. it turned out as a circus, especially when he had Lewandowski there, and Pelosi didn't want you know that to be the face of impeachment. So. Yeah. 
it is very likely, I think, that they will try to keep it as limited as possible, but Correct. the Republicans are going to demand to have their say, to call witnesses, to present their case before judiciary, and that does threaten to become the kind yeah. of circus, the very circus she wanted to avoid. I don't There's think Nadler can, can, yeah, I don't think Nadler can shut down the Republicans completely and not allow any witnesses. I mean, I think that would be, the well, optics of that would not be good. And they've got 10 days now to make that case. So that's going to happen. Judiciary will have whatever judiciary has, and then they will vote on articles. The House will, as a full House, probably vote on articles, we think, before the end of the year. And then it goes to the Senate. Well, All plenty right. more to talk about on Skullduggery. And for sure. uh, we will have you back, John. Thanks for joining us. All right. Thanks to former federal prosecutor Peter Zeidenberg and our Yahoo News colleague John Ward for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.